Welcome to the Doctors Hospital Podcast. I'm your host, Alexis Burrows, Marketing Director at Doctors Hospital. two years into the COVID-19 pandemic um, here in the Bahamas and around the world, and we felt it would be a good time given, you know, everything that's happened in the past few months from the Omicron variant and sub-variants that are going on, we felt it would be a good time to touch base um, with our clinical director in the COVID space, Dr. Charlie Ann Bonamy. So our guest today is Dr. Charlie Ann Bonamy, who is our clinical director of COVID care and infection prevention and control here at Doctors Hospital. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Bonamy. Oh, welcome back. I think you. this is your second time on. No, well, this is my first. Good morning. Good morning, Alexis. Thanks for welcoming me here. Good to be here. Before we get started, here's some information about Doctors Hospital's Pharmacy's new initiative, Pick Up Now, Pay Later. Doctors Hospital's Pharmacy introduces a new spin on prescriptions called Pick Up Now, Pay Later. That's right, you can collect your medications first and pay after. How does it work? Step one, submit a prescription online. Step two, select a pickup site. Step three, collect your medication. And step four, pay online within 14 days. For more info, call us at 242-302-4785 or visit us at doctorshosp.com. We would like to note to our listeners that this podcast was recorded Tuesday, March 29th, and does not take into consideration the government of the Bahamas' communication on Friday, April 1st, regarding the potential tightening of COVID-19 measures. All right. So we want to, um, you know, basically just kind of touch base with you, see, you know, where we are, where we're headed, what people ought to know in this space of COVID-19. Again, like I said, having been two years in, in terms of, I think for us, I think our first case was around um, April, March or April of 2020. So for us, it's two years, obviously for other places in the world, it dates back to the fall of 2019. So, you know, in that heading towards three year space. Um, but obviously, you know, for the past two, two and a half to three years, it's been a point of discussion in almost all aspects of our lives from finance to politics and obviously health. You know, in short, where are we? And are we officially out of the pandemic? Boy, so Alexis, this pandemic continues to evolve. Mm -hmm. There were many questions early on as it relates to how long this pandemic would last and the possibility of mutations and reinfections and so on. Mm -hmm. Many of these questions, you know, we simply couldn't answer. And even when we attempted to, we weren't so correct. I can recall many virologists, as they first studied the genetic makeup of SARS-CoV-2, concluded that it had good proofreading mechanisms that would make the emergence of variants unlikely. Mm -hmm. Fast forward to today, mm -hmm. and we've had at least five variants of concern in just a two-year span. Right. We, we still haven't gotten a clear picture on what's driving this, what's driving these surges, and for the most part, what stops them. Um, we've experienced an evolution of this pandemic that has really been orchestrated by the virus's behavior. Mm -hmm. The emergence of variants and the unique characteristics that they possess have moved the goalposts and have dictated, for the most part, 
um, how we respond and how we try to live with COVID. That being said, over the past two years, we've learned a tremendous amount and we've come a long way. Testing, for example, in the first months of the pandemic was very frustrating. Mm -hmm. It took up to a week at times to get a test result back. Mm -hmm. And during that phase, you couldn't even test someone unless they had symptoms. Right. So you, you almost sanctioned if you did so. Now we can test in the comfort of our homes and we have testing areas that are free. Mm -hmm. We know now the importance of mask wearing and preventing transmission. And that science has continued to evolve and help us determine which type of masks are better. Right. Again, our ability to monitor for various mutations and the emergence of other concerning variants have also improved with more nations now um, doing whole genome sequencing that can detect how the virus is mutating, which can help to predict how it's going to behave and therefore alert the world when there is, you know, some cause for concern and the need to potentially brace themselves. And we've made strides as it relates to treatment and therapeutics. Um, we've seen the rollout of several antiviral platforms and monoclonal antibodies, if given at the right time for the right patient, mm -hmm. can have a good outcome. And we've been able to better equip ourselves with how to manage um, COVID cases in hospital. And last but not least, you know, we certainly can't forget that we now have vaccines, mm -hmm. which have undoubtedly played a major role in preventing infection and human casualty. So the Bahamas, you know, we're several weeks now out of, it, out of the Omicron surge, where we essentially experienced the highest rates of infection during the entire pandemic, along with many other countries. And currently, we've seen the emergence of this new sublineage of Omicron called the BA2, um, which simply means it's very closely related to the original Omicron, but it has a few areas in its genetic makeup that make it different. It's been shown that this new sublineage has somewhat of a transmission advantage over the original Omicron, and it has resulted in rising cases in parts of Asia and Europe, mm -hmm. and it has... It has actually resulted in peak cases as well as significant hospitalizations and death in many of those countries to the point where hospitals and funeral homes have struggled to keep up with death toll. To make matters a bit confusing, though, there are areas where this variant is located which are not experiencing a surge in, in cases and a rise in hospitalizations. It's been found in the U.S., and, and the U.S. hospitalizations actually continue to decline. So locally, regionally, and globally, we're seeing a relaxation in COVID restrictions. Right. And so it's possible that this, you know, this variant will be heading here. What impact it's going to have in our country is really anyone's guess. Mm -hmm. When when we look at the Bahamas and our own contacts, we have a relaxation in, in our restrictions. Right. Roughly, roughly only about, what, 50% of our eligible population are vaccinated. We have a lull in our vaccine uptake. Mm -hmm. And there's concern, you know, of waning immunity amongst the fully vaccinated and maybe even amongst the boosted. And with ongoing global transmission, it kind of places us in, in a very precarious position. Two weeks ago, the 
director of the World Health Organization noted that the pandemic is far from over. Right. Uh, he stated that it will not be over anywhere until it is over everywhere. So in short, Alexis, you know, we're not out of this pandemic. Um, low and no cases is not new. We've seen this before. Mm -hmm. So we're not at the end. Uh, um, but with the advancements we've made over these two years, we're at least not at the beginning. We're perhaps somewhere at the end of the beginning. <laughs> wow. That, I mean, that's an interesting way to put it, because I think, you know, the, the ultimate end point, I think, of that question for a lot of people is, are, are we in a state where it's endemic yet? Like, are we, are we at that point where, you know, more and more restrictions are going to fall off? Or are we still just kind of, I mean, obviously, from your answer to that first question, there's so much difference in how this presents and how it's acted and operated from what, you know, the medical community understands of how these things work. Um, so I think that's the thing for a lot of people is like, you know, are we are we in the endemic stage? Can we start to feel like, you know, freedom is coming, quote unquote? Yeah, so I don't I don't think we're there yet. Um certainly with the the new variants that play a role, who mm -hmm. knows what can happen. Um it seems as though variants they take on different features and characteristics. And so to say we're endemic at this point, I don't know if we're there yet. Right. Uh, I think we're transitioning to that point, mm -hmm. but we we still have cases in places globally where where countries are surging. So you can't really call it an endemic phase at this point. Right. Because there's still so much that's happening um, in in well, different right. places, like you said. Like it's it's operating and it's it's behaving differently in different places. So I guess it goes back to that point, um, like you said. You know. We won't be out of it until everyone's out of it, which is, you know, I guess an, an interesting, um, an interesting thing to consider, given everything else that's going on. Um, so with that said, I know you mentioned um, like the Omicron variant. Obviously, we know that Delta was was another um, critical um, phase of the pandemic for us, another critical um, variant. So we've been talking about variants, I guess, going back for at least, I would say, what, maybe eight, nine, ten months now, especially in looking at those two in particular. Obviously, that would have been a point of, of concern even before that. But moving forward, how should how should people react to new strains and new variants? Right. So it's it's important to know that this virus actually mutates all the time, which gives rise to variants more commonly than we actually know. Mm -hmm. We We've had many variants of interest that have not um, had or resulted in global impact. Concerning variants such as Alpha, Beta, Gamma, Delta, and as of late, Omicron, mm -hmm. are determined variants of concern because they possess one or several important characteristics or features that lead to surges and global outbreaks. With regards to these features, they can be either inherently more um, transmissible. We've seen this certainly with Delta and Omicron, which were much more transmissible than the original SARS-CoV-2 virus. Another concerning feature would be that it causes more severe disease, like in the case with the Delta surge. Mm -hmm. um, another would be an increased ability to evade the vaccine and natural immune defenses. And so natural immunity and vaccine immunity in the case of Omicron 
did little to prevent infection, although our vaccine and natural immunity have shown benefit beyond just neutralizing antibodies and infection prevention, but also in preventing um, serious illness. Right. Another concerning feature would be variants that are less vulnerable to our treatment and therapeutic drugs. Mm -hmm. So really, a lot of our response will likely be based and dictated on which features we're facing with regards to these new variants and what we're actually willing to tolerate. Certainly a more aggressive strain with the ability to cause significant human casualty mm -hmm. that overrun our hospitals, we would want to be more aggressive with our restriction measures than one that's not as aggressive. Right. Um, a plan focused on continued vaccination efforts in conjunction with active regional and global surveillance and the agility to ramp up or scale down restriction measures given regional and some cases global prevalence of COVID is perhaps what's needed during this period in time. Mm -hmm. Certainly too, we should not lose sight that this will not be our last pandemic and we must continue to develop our national pandemic preparedness efforts even while we try to navigate this current one. Right. Yeah, I mean, you know, I, I think it's, it is a lot about, you mentioned being agile. I think that's the most critical thing um, it seems now in, in where we are with COVID-19 in particular is the ability to, to, you know, have the information, come to certain conclusions quickly and then adjust as need be as quickly as possible. Thus speaking to the agility of, you know, protocols, um, testing and treatment measures, all of those sorts of things. Most definitely. And so shifting the conversation, you know, what, what, cause you know, we, we talk a lot in the space of what happens once you have COVID, um, and, and, and that sort of tends to be a, a space where a lot of people sit, but what is, what should be the current role of supplements and preventative medicine in the fight against COVID? <laughs> yeah, I get this question. Um, excuse me. So firstly, there's there's no doubt that that the immune system plays a vital role in in how COVID-19 impacts a person. It's not all that clear cut, but a good rule of thumb is that persons with more weakened immune systems don't do as good as those with strong immune systems. Mm -hmm. Obviously, there are exceptions to that rule. Nothing in, in medicine is absolute. Right. There there are some supplements or vitamins that we have identified that may play a role in contributing to a healthy immune system, example, vitamin D. Mm -hmm. um, there's an association, for example, of low vitamin D levels in medical diseases that have been associated with weaker immune systems. Again, we, we are all different. And so that interaction has not been clearly delineated scientifically, but it appears that at least for the most part, supplementing with certain vitamins don't, don't seem to be harmful. Mm -hmm. When we look at our immune systems, it, you know, it's interesting. In fact, it begins um, to take form even before we're born. As a matter of fact, your gut or your gastrointestinal um, microbiota, that's the bacteria that makes up what's in your stomach and your intestines and your colon, which is a significant source of your immunity is formed through your birth canal mm -hmm. and how you're delivered. 
So where babies who are born vaginally, they have different microbiota than babies who are born by a C-section. And that microbiome is usually evened out by a year. Our immune systems then are further influenced and developed by our lifestyle, our environment, how we age, and certainly what we're exposed to. So the notion that you know a few weeks of vitamins can have a significant impact on your immunity in an effort to protect against COVID is not reliable. In fact, mm. the clinical trials that have studied the, the impact of the commonly used vitamins for COVID have not demonstrated any kind of benefit. What, what we have seen though um, is a consistent demonstration of what these infectious diseases have on persons with certain chronic diseases. Right. O obesity, for example, was the major fa risk factor for death in the H1N1 flu pandemic. Mm -hmm. and has certainly been a major risk factor for death in this one. Right. We do know the elderly, they have a weaker immune system. Mm -hmm. But fortunately, they're also plagued with other chronic diseases like high blood pressure, diabetes, and Correct. heart disease, all of which are independent factors that contribute to a worse outcome in a COVID patient. So certainly control of these chronic diseases, ensuring your blood pressure, your sugars control, that you maintain a healthy weight and diet and mm -hmm. exercise regimen go a much longer way in protecting against serious illness than taking vitamins or supplements. Right. So, I mean, what it sounds like is it's more so about if you have a chronic disease, making sure that it's controlled um, and, you know, if you have the ability to, so if you don't have a chronic disease to try and maintain a healthy lifestyle, so healthy weight, healthy amount of activity, um, physical activity, stress relief, that sort of thing. Um, cause it seems like that's where a lot of the, um, the, the dangers and the, 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 the risk of death with COVID-19 comes more so from generally speaking, if you're starting from a place of not being that healthy. And then it kind of, it, it, it works its way more uh, in a more damaging way through those sorts of folks. Correct. So su taking supplements isn't harmful unless you're deciding to take supplements and neglect everything else. Correct. Understand? Neglect taking care of your overall health. Right. Yeah. And I mean, I think it was a conversation that Dr. Smith had mentioned a comment about, you know, even when you get into like the bush medicines and the, and the herbal space, you know, you also have to be mindful that those things have impact on your body as well. And, and, you know, it's, it still requires, and, and you, sh you still should consult with a physician or with someone who um, is in that space that, that is very acutely aware of how all of that impact, especially if you are already dealing with a chronic disease on top of all of that. Cause you know, when we talk about supplements and preventative medicines around here, it's not just you know, your vitamins and, and, and your minerals, you, you have mm -hmm. to speak to that, that, um, the Bush medicine space as well, so to speak. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Definitely. So, uh, moving on, you know, we, like I said, we've been in this space now for two years. I think we've been in, in the mode of testing for at least a year and a half, um, or maybe a little bit more. Um, you know, we've seen, Obviously, as things have transitioned, we've seen more and more at-home testing kits pop up. Um, from your perspective, you know, what's your view on at-home tests versus facility testing? Yeah, so testing testing has been and remains an important component in how we navigate this pandemic. Um, each test, they have their own pros and cons, and when we look at facility versus home tests, 
facility tests are usually approved by um, various accreditation bodies. So they tend to be a bit more reliable than home tests. Mm -hmm. Doesn't mean that home tests don't perform well, but they may not be as accurate as the facility tests. The, the obvious downside to facility testing, though, is that you got to do them at a facility mm -hmm. as opposed to the convenience of doing one in the comfort of your own home. The accuracy of testing, though, depends not just on the inherent um, strengths and weaknesses of the test itself, but also on a few other things. For example, your level of suspicion mm -hmm. that you have or have not been exposed to COVID is actually very important. Right. Also, how much COVID is circulating in, your, in the community during the time of your test. These questions play a role with regards to how reliable the result of that test is. So for example, if you're in a surge and the level of COVID in the community is high, you feel sick, you have a cough and a fever, and you do a facility test that is negative and you go home and do a home test that is positive, it's more likely than not that that home test is the accurate one. Mm -hmm. So again, they all have inherent weaknesses and strengths what matters is how you use them and the context in which they're being used. Um, they provide an extra layer of reliability in certain aspects. Another example is, say you plan on going by an at-risk person, mm -hmm. you have no symptoms, um, you're vaccinated, and you just want to make sure that you're not putting a loved one at risk. Right. A, a negative at-home test in the context of that scenario um, low levels of COVID in the community mm -hmm. can provide um, some extra surety. Right, especially if you're if you're operating from a, a low level of suspicion for your own self in that moment, right? You don't, you don't have any symptoms, anything like that. Right. I mean, I know we we did that um, as a family personally in December. We had um, a couple of friends that came into town and we wanted to connect. So what we did was we actually bought a few at home kits. And we kind of tested people, you know, at the door, so to speak. And so it was kind of the same idea of, you know, nobody had symptoms, nobody had anything like that. But it was just to kind of make sure um, that yeah. we were doing our due diligence, especially that would have been the time right before Omicron or right as Omicron popped up. Um, so I get that in certain circumstances where it's it's beneficial and where it's helpful. Yeah, and, and I'm sure everyone had a good time and everyone um, is still here today. Mm -hmm. Exactly. <laughs> Um, and so, yeah, I, I think it is, it is more so about being honest with, you know, your, your particular circumstances. So, you know, if you're taking a test because you, you know, you've been sniffling or coughing or whatever it is, um, you know, you kind of have to take your results with a grain of salt. If you're seeing symptoms and you're getting a negative result, then that might lead you to getting, you know, a test at a facility is that, that sort of thing. And I think... I think yeah. the, the question there and the issue there always is going to come down to personal responsibility um, and being honest about the entire process and, and acting with that level of personal responsibility to you as a person, to your family, um, to your workplace, you know, that sort of thing. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, we've, um, <clears throat> we go back to talking about um, prevention and that whole process, but just looking at, you know, COVID in general, has it shifted the way that we look at germs and how they're spread? Boy, I wouldn't say so much shifted, but it has highlighted a few very important aspects. The first for me is the, um, 
the concept of asymptomatic spread. With the previous coronavirus outbreaks, those epidemics were eventually um, halted mm-hmm. because there was no asymptomatic transmission. Right. So isolation and quarantine efforts were much more effective right. for those epidemics than with this with, than with this COVID one. Right? Mm-hmm. Asymptomatic transmission is it's not a new phenomenon though. We've seen it in some viral cases like influenza and even chickenpox, mm-hmm. where chickenpox is actually much more contagious before your rash actually But we've never seen it with the magnitude that we have with SARS-CoV-2, right. which has certainly contributed to the reasons it's been able to bypass many of our mitigation efforts. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was also interesting to see when we had strict lockdowns of nations and countries and travel that despite those efforts, you couldn't keep this virus from doing what it wanted to do. Even countries today, example, China, who have in place very strict lockdown and restriction policies for any level of COVID that's circulating. They continue to face surging cases because of Omicron, mm-hmm. which we know is many more times infectious than the previous COVID variants. Right. And then um, perhaps the occurrence of reinfection has stood out to me. We've seen persons up to three, four times become mm-hmm. reinfected with COVID despite natural and in some cases vaccine immunity, mm-hmm. all, all really within just a two-year span. And so the emergence of variants and the ability of the virus to evolve in a way to evade immunity so that it will continue to persist and live, um, for me, has certainly been remarkable. Right. You know, um, based on that, too, I think the obvious next question or next two questions would then be, you know, does that mean that social distancing is still necessary? And does that mean that masking is still necessary? Uh, with regards to social distancing, I, I certainly hope it is. Mm-hmm. I, for one, I'm loving my space more and more. <laughs> um, <laughs> social distancing, no doubt, you know, it, it has played and it continues to play um, an important role in decreasing spread. Mm-hmm. COVID is still a respiratory virus from what I know. So it still can only travel certain distances. And so this kind of mitigation strategy would likely need to continue as long as the pandemic continues. Obviously, there are situations where we can't socially distance. And so in those arenas, um, it's important that we all be responsible, like you said. And and that includes knowing your COVID status, being in tune tune with your health, masking if you can, and being vaccinated if you're eligible. And with mask, masking is still, just as social distancing is, is still very important. It's important to keep in mind, you know, the context that we are in currently as, as a nation. Mm-hmm. Only, only roughly about 50% of our eligible population, you know, is vaccinated. Right. The virus is still surging in other parts of the world. And the country has opened and continues to welcome guests. Mm-hmm. And we still are seeing cases, albeit low cases, but it's still present. I, for one, understand the mass fatigue, but I don't think based on these current metrics now is a good time to pull away from masking Mm -hmm. um, completely. Nonetheless, I could be wrong. Um, Certainly there are 
again, arenas where you may not need to be as strict. So for example, outdoor events and outdoor sporting events. And then there are other areas where you do need to be strict, like hospitals. Mm -hmm. Again, a lot of the decision on um, restriction policies will likely include a formula that consists of, you know, what our vaccination rates are, what's going on with community transmission, mm -hmm. what the hospital capacity, and likely the, the trust that's earned in, in folks, not just being responsible, but also understanding and willing to dial it back a bit should we begin to see problems arise right. as it relates to our COVID numbers. Yeah. <clears throat> and obviously, you know, the next question you mentioned vaccines here and there through our conversation, you know, where are we with vaccines? I know there's been mention of um, tweaking the vaccine to, to, to be more um, in line with fighting particular variants, that sort of thing. Um, but overall just in terms of you know where where is that and where is that going so vaccination has certainly been a game changer throughout this pandemic um, we've seen early on its role in preventing covid infection and then even as the virus evolved and had the ability to evade vaccine neutralizing immunity vaccines continued to hold their own as they prevented serious illness amongst the most vulnerable should they contract the virus. Um, they've played a major role in decreasing the human toll to the hospitals, mm. as well as human casualty, and have been proven to be safe. I think there are still uncertainties with regards to how many boosters and shots we will continue to need moving forward. Mm. We do know that vaccine immunity wanes after several months and so if you have a virus that continuously changes and persists and outlasts that time frame then you end up with a population that becomes more and more vulnerable and so more boosters will likely be required um, you mentioned it we have pharmaceutical companies looking at these variants and formulating variant specific vaccinations so in the likelihood they are there shows up a variant which the current vaccine platforms are not able to perform well against, a variant-specific vaccine can be utilized. And again, you know, the pandemic is not over. We still have a lot of vulnerable people out there in the community and globally, and vaccines have proven to be safe and have been a tremendous resource for protecting against serious disease. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the flip side of vaccine obviously then goes into, um, you know, there's been a, a, an expanded list of COVID treatment options. Um, obviously, looking in the pharmaceutical space, there's been um, work towards a COVID-19 drug, that sort of thing. Um, how should we view these options? We should view it with great optimism, to be honest with you. Um, Throughout history, we haven't really been that all effective at treating viral infections. Mm -hmm. The past two years during this pandemic, we've seen this explosion of proposed treatment options being studied and used for the potential management of this virus. Now, only a handful have really stood the test of time, but that in itself is a remarkable accomplishment. Um, Early on, we did make some significant advancements in 
treatment options in hospitalized patients. Mm -hmm. And, you know, that was good because it had a tremendous impact on their outcome. The problem, however, was that there existed this huge disparity with regards to the therapeutic options for hospitalized patients mm -hmm. versus those at home. Right. And that resulted in patients coming into hospitals sicker than they should have been mm -hmm. if we had appropriate to give them while they were at home. Now, that gap has closed significantly in that we have medications in the form of antivirals and monoclonal antibodies that have been shown to decrease um, disease severity and hence your chances of being hospitalized if they are given early enough in the disease process, which is certainly good because it means that you can recover at home and limit your chances of being hospitalized, especially if you fall into one of those high-risk category of patients. Right. The task now is to be able to afford persons the opportunity to receive these treatments. Hopefully, as more and more therapeutic options become available, the ability to access these medications are more easily um, improved. Right. I mean, I think <clears throat> that's one of the, the, the key parts of this conversation um, is access, right? access to testing access to vaccines access to various COVID treatment options um and i think that's the one thing that i would say um is kind of a through line through a lot of this conversation is you know providing a greater level of access to all of the different components of what it takes to um to fight the pandemic to fight COVID 19. um so like i said access to testing access to vaccines access to treatment um yeah you know, Alexis, I think, you know, you, you hit on a, a really important point there. Um, we have such, we have platforms that offer such a you know, wide based testing, mm -hmm. right? The hospitals and different labs and the government. Um, can you imagine if we're able to link that resource to treatment? Mm -hmm. Are you able to link testing a positive patient who might be at risk? to starting them on some treatment regimen that will prevent them from being hospitalized. Right. I think it would go uh, definitely go a long way in in this war against this virus. Yeah. I mean, and I think the one thing too, I, I mean, I'm, I'm going to take the assumption that, you know, there's probably a fair amount of people on both sides of the fence who have traveled and not traveled in the past um, year or so since restrictions were eased. You know, it's a lot easier to get tested here than it is to get tested in a lot of places in the states in particular um, yeah. i've had a number of friends and colleagues who've mentioned you know traveling um for exams traveling for a lot of different reasons that trying to find a testing facility to get the, the required test for returning um was a nightmare and so i think sometimes you know we we view ourselves as though we don't have the best or we don't have you know, options and variety, but we're doing a lot better than a lot of other places with when it comes to access to testing in particular. Um, and I think you're, you're, you're absolutely right. If, if you were to say, you know, what is the next phase of this um, as the pandemic continues to, 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 to exist with us and, and be with us, I think the next, the next um, expansion of this is how do we connect testing with getting treatment into the hands of people as quickly as possible? Because um, that would obviously give us a, a, a much um, 
better arsenal in terms of, of, of keeping people healthy and keeping them alive, um, even if they were to end up contracting COVID? Most definitely. Um, so this has been a very good conversation, Dr. Bonami. Um, I think we covered a, a lot of really decent and a, a lot of necessary information for our listeners. Um, I want to thank you for taking time out of your busy schedule to, to come on the podcast today. Um, and we look forward to, to speaking with you again, probably a few months down the line to see where we are with COVID at that point. But thank you very much for your time. Thank you for having me. All right. Thanks again to Clinical Director of COVID Care at Doctors Hospital, Dr. Charlion Bonamy, for joining us today on the show. And to our listening audience, thank you again for listening to the show. And as always, we invite you to like, comment, subscribe, and share. And we look forward to seeing you here next time on the Doctors Hospital podcast. Doctors Hospital is proud to announce the launch of our Infusion Center. This center is available for patients in need of IV hydration and nutrition therapy, blood products, long-term antibiotics, and specialized medicines for a spectrum of diseases across multiple specialties, including rheumatology, dermatology, gastroenterology, and endocrinology. We also provide the latest in therapeutic options for COVID-positive patients. Why choose Doctors Hospital? We provide quality, highly specialized care with Doctors Hospital physicians and trained infusion nurses you can trust. Seamless medication approval through our pharmacy and registration services, a safe and comfortable environment, cost-saving benefits with copay waived on medications for insured LAMP members, payment plans for the uninsured, and immediate access to emergency services. We're located at the Luton Building on Daswell Street. For more information, contact us at 242-302-3323 or email us at infusioncenter at doctorshosp.com. Doctors Hospital, trusted and best care now. Isn't your health worth it?